Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So, this morning, we are... Well, the title of the, the message is called Jesus Has the Talk with Us this morning. Um, and so if you didn't see on Facebook or if you didn't get the, the email, um, we're, we're talking about lust this morning, which is really fun to preach about. And if anybody wants to volunteer and come up here and step up here for me, I'm happy to have you. Um, we're going to keep it classy. This is going to be a PG-13, so don't worry about kids being in the room. Uh, and a lot of times when we talk about stuff like this, people will ask, why are we talking about that at church? And I promise I'm going to make it non-awkward. It's not going to be strange. I'm not going to be walking around pointing specific people out and asking you to confess your sins. It's, gonna be, it's not going to be strange or awkward or weird any more than it normally is. And so people ask, why do you talk about stuff like this at church? Um, the first reason is because Jesus did. So if he talked about it, we feel obligated to talk about it as well. And the other th reason is, if you have kids, if you have young kids, um, I suppose you could just allow them to learn about this topic from their friends uh, or in the locker room, or you could allow Hollywood to teach them about sexual ethics, or you could allow the music industry, or maybe there's a YouTuber that you could just have them listen to a YouTuber and they would uh, give some good advice. Um, one of the things that Kara and I looked into the legality of is um, locking our daughters in the basement until they're 25, <laughs> which that's not legal, um, but we really looked into it and uh, that was our first choice. Um, but in all seriousness, we believe that actually the church should talk about stuff like this because this is real life um, and everyone else is talking about it and they're going to hear from everybody else so we might as well figure out what does God have to say about this topic and there's actually a great book and it's called Raising Sexually Healthy Kids. If you are wondering how to have the talk with your kids, this is enormously helpful and uh, if you're you're really desperate for some help, you can catch me after service and I will give you this copy. Um, and if you have questions, you don't forget, I mean, you forget what it's called, you can email me, email us at the church, our email's on the bulletin, and I will give you some, some helpful resources that are trustworthy. Uh, because believe it or not, there's good and bad Christian uh, takes on this as well. So I'll put it right there so I don't forget it up there. All right, we ready to dive in? Are you guys excited? <laughs> I am too. This is going to be fun. All right, Matthew 5, 27 through 30. So Matthew 5, we'll start at verse 27. And there's a lot of people cheering for this, and I know I'm really excited too about it. So let's just start reading, and we're going to talk about it a little bit at a time. This is Jesus talking, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now let's just... Plain speak, adultery means um, not being faithful to one's spouse. That's what adultery specifically in this occasion means, and in all occasions. Um, and the reason why it's a big deal is because the marriage relationship is it's a living metaphor 
that God chooses to put on earth to demonstrate the relationship that Jesus has with the church. So it's meant to demonstrate the faithfulness, the intimacy, all those things are supposed to be a living metaphor, a picture of the relationship that we have with God, okay, as a community. So when people look at your marriage, they're supposed to see how good Jesus is to the church. And when we mess up on this, and we all mess up on this, okay, I'm so glad the Romans 8.1 begins with, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because you don't think you have, but you have. Every single person who is married in one way or another, and we're going to see why that's true in a little bit, has committed some form of adultery. That's just the truth. And I'm going to show you why that's true when we get to how Jesus unpacks this. But we see here that Jesus is referring back to the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments. So how many, were you here when we did the, the series on the Ten Commandments? Was anybody here or did, you, or did everyone leave when we did that? Okay, so there's a few of you that left, that, that stayed. Um, our first series at Southside was Snapshots of, the, of Jesus, right? The life of Jesus, Snapshots of the life of Jesus. The second series, which we broke every single church planting rule in the book, we did a series called The Ten Commandments. We weren't even trying to be cute about it. We weren't even trying to hide it. We just said The Ten Commandments. That's what our series was on. We were supposed to do like 57 ways to be intimate with your spouse, but we said, no, we're going to do The Ten Commandments. It wasn't a very seeker-friendly thing, but it was awesome. It was amazing because one of the things we learned about in The Ten Commandments is that the commandments don't just tell us what God is against, which everyone thinks. It actually tells us what God is for. So we're going to have a little bit of interaction this morning, okay? Um, I want you to participate. I want you to, first of all, to make it a little more comfortable, tell the person next to you. If God is not just against stealing, we're going to practice these things. So it's not just what he's against, but what he's for. He's not just against stealing. What do you think he's for? When God says don't steal, what do you think he's telling you that he is for? Giving! Oh, this is going to be easier than I thought. Okay, so yeah, God is not just against stealing. He is for giving. He's for being generous. I know I'm yelling. I hear you. I'm so sorry. He's like, he's yelling. I get it. I, I don't like when preachers are yelling at me either. I'm trying not to. I'm sorry, buddy. Um, so he's not just, we got to keep it light this morning. It's a heavy topic. So he's not just against stealing. He's for giving. He is for giving. Uh, He's for being generous. Instead of like taking something from you to make me great, I'm giving something to you to make you great, right? So he's for generosity. So God is not just against bearing false witness, lying. What do you think he's for? Truthfulness. Speaking simply. Let what you say be plain speak. Don't be so confusing no one can't understand what you're saying. Let your yes be yes And your no be no. You don't have to make all these. I promise this time, I really swear, like let your word speak for itself. Sometimes speak truthfully to power. These are all things that he is for. Let's do another one. God is not just against coveting your neighbor's stuff. He's for, what do you think he's for? He's not just against you wanting your neighbor's stuff. What do you think he's for? Yeah, contentment. Yeah, super. I mean, it's just... Deeply contented life as it is right now. That's the key. 
Most people think about, I will be content when this happens, but contentment actually deals with the present circumstance. That's what's so powerful about it. He's not just against you wanting your neighbor's stuff. He's, he's for you being content with your life as it is right now and demonstrating gratitude for the ways that he's provided for you. All right, last one. This is today. So God is not merely against adultery. What do you think he's for? Faithfulness. Yeah, absolutely. Someone said faithfulness back there. That's absolutely right. Faithfulness, a flourishing family, a relationship with the person that is your that knows you better than anybody else in the world and loves you anyways, your spouse. He's for families, families being a place where healthy lives come out of a marriage where people are intimately connected with one another and committed to one another in a lifelong way. So that's why um, adultery is so damaging. But doesn't that reframe it for you a little bit? Like not just about what he's against, but what he's, what he's for. Because we get stuck on what's not allowed, and we want that. But what's allowed is so much better. You know, in the Garden of Eden, um, God said you can, have, you can eat of any tree, any tree, just except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Satan tempt them to do? What did Satan have a conversation with Eve about? Not the probably thousands of trees and varieties of fruit that they could partake of, but the one they weren't supposed to. So Jesus is simply repeating here the seventh commandment, but remember, he always raises the bar. He unpacks it at a deeper level. So how is he going to unpack thou shalt not commit adultery? Because you know some of the people might be feeling very prideful listening to this, like, yeah, I've never done that. And Jesus is like, ah, He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or at a man or for women, it would be feeling mostly just feeling these deep feelings for another man. Um, Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, wow. Because Jesus just raised the level of our ability to do this from difficult to impossible. This is impossible. In fact, guys, raise your hands if you've ever... I'm just kidding. We're not going <laughs> to do that. Um, <laughs> so I was at a retreat one time, and there was, a, there was a, an, an older gentleman there. He was probably hitting his 80s, and he was uh, like a spiritual director for us, so we could talk with him about any of our you know, any of the things that were being talked about the retreat, and one of them was about purity. And so we, a bunch of us were just, you know, shooting the breeze with this guy after, after the talk. And older guy, very wise, very godly, and we just asked him, does it ever go away? Like, the desire, does it ever completely go away? And he said, no. And we're like, uh, you want to say a little more about that? Because I'm not encouraged. Are you encouraged? It's always a live threat. Now, it gets easier. As you walk with the Lord, he, um, it does, he dims the desires the more you walk with him. But it's always a live threat, which is why Scripture always says things like, there's a, there's a huge family of commandments that says, be watchful, be sober-minded, 
pay attention. We ought to know what's happening on, in, inside of our hearts. Now, Southside, we believe that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can become a community that's actually countercultural. And one of the marks of a mature Christian community is that every individual is safe. Every individual is safe. And every marriage is safe. And most women, and correct me if I'm wrong, ladies, Southside ladies, okay, but I've been for 21 years in various counseling and ministry situations, and I've, I've learned that a woman can walk into a room, and if it's full of guys, and she can interact with several of those guys, this is shocking, this, is, this might surprise you guys, but a woman has some type of intuition that she can often tell if this guy that she's talking to has some type of addiction to things he should not be looking at. They don't know exactly what it is, they just feel a little unsafe. Is that, am I right, women? Am I, am I saying that correctly? You can say amen. If I'm, if I'm right, you can say it so we can all hear it, because I'm not just making that up. I've heard this from women that I'm not safe around this guy. And here's what I want to say to my Southside guys. We want to be a place where that doesn't happen, ever. So let me talk with you for a minute, guys. There's a great verse in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 16, 13. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, this is going to be the most pragmatic, practical, clear, kind of behavior-focused statement that you will ever hear me say. But sometimes guys just need to hear it, don't we, guys? We just need to hear it straight. Shoot it to me straight. Here it is, guys. A godly man does not objectify women. A godly man does not imagine things he shouldn't be imagining about another woman. He just doesn't do it. A boy does that. Because a boy doesn't know how to handle himself and handle those feelings and those emotions. A man doesn't do that. So we've got people on an eye, uh, keeping an eye out for stuff like this. There's men in this room who are watching for this. Because this will not be a place where women are unsafe. All right. Christians have dealt with this in some strange ways. Uh, you know, I've heard very strange pithy little statements like, it's okay to appreciate the beauty of a woman. It's like appreciating God's handiwork. No. I don't think I need to say any more than no. <laughs> like, what do you, oh, there is a, I just appreciate the Lord's handiwork, right? And it's like, no, that doesn't, you can't say that. And no. Or this one, and I kind of understand what they're saying, but still it doesn't sit right with me. It's okay if the birds fly around your head, just don't let them build a nest in your hair. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Like, you have, I get it, temptations, they're going to come and go, but you're going to let them fly, but like, swat them away. So you get it, kind of get the feel that the way the culture deals with this is just relax. It's natural. It's okay, chill out, relax. It's not a, it's not a big deal. Now, it's true that the desire is natural and God-given, but there's an out-of-bound ways to pursue this desire, and there's an inbound ways, way to pursue this desire, which is a man and a woman married together, committed to one another for life. So, does Jesus just say relax? I mean, I believe him more than I believe anybody else. If he says, eh, it's natural, chill out, relax, it's no big deal. If he says that, okay, fine, sermon over. Let's see what he says, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
That doesn't feel like relax. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now that doesn't sound like relax to me. It sounds severe, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking about why it's so, so severe here in a second, but we have to deal with a word, don't we? Because there's a word in there that we haven't talked about a whole lot here at Southside. Anybody pick it out? Hell. We haven't talked a lot about hell, have we? Now, the church has a weird relationship with hell. We either completely ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist, or we obsessively hyper-emphasize it and pretty much touch on it in every, every message. In the medieval period, and we talked about this at Personal Ministry Night this month, in the middle, medieval period, um, hell came to the forefront of the church's theology, specifically the Catholic church. Um, they, the early church focused more on when Christ returns and just the goodness of that moment, what's going to happen. But the medieval period, the Catholic church started really obsessing about hell. And they shifted the emphasis and the focus so that a lot of people started really just teaching about it. And there were some 19th and 20th century uh, Christian evangelists that really took it up to another level and it got really weird. We started, um, whole denominations were built around fire and brimstone and it got very strange. That's an overemphasis, I think. But, but, Jesus was vivid and clear about hell. He talked about it a lot. Heaven and hell are equally affirmed in Scripture. If you believe in one, you have to believe in the other. So there will be an actual moment, for example, there's going to be a moment in the future where powerful, arrogant world leaders, it says, world leaders who took on the responsibility of God and said, I will bring peace. I will bring prosperity. There is actually a moment in time that will happen in the future where Scripture says in the book of Revelation, they will all gather and scream out to the mountains, fall on us, fall on me, to hide me from the gaze of the one sitting on the throne. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be reward and judgment. Jude talks about false teachers being wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Hell. Matthew 25, Jesus talked about separating sheep and goats, and he's talking about people. And he says one group is going to come into eternal life, and one group's going to go into eternal judgment. And in a parallel passage to today's passage, in, in Mark 9, it says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if we never talked about hell, Southside, first of all, you would miss out on how beautiful and great grace really is because he made a way for us to not have to deal with that in the future. But the silence would be deafening. We'd have to skip over a lot of parts of the Bible. And again, this is, again, our culture has some really strange notions of hell today. You know, I've heard all my friends are going to be partying there, so why would I want to go anywhere else where my friends aren't going to be? We're all going to just be, have one big party. And I don't think you understand biblical hell. Or it's, some people have the idea that it's the place where Satan rules. Like Satan's the king of hell. He's like, in, you think of this underground, like in the middle of the earth or something, some, 
all these caverns and fires and everything, and Satan's like ruling there right now, and there's demons that are serving as guards and stuff. It's a weird, it, it, hell is actually created for them, will be created for them. So we've got strange ideas, but the worst thing about hell is you can no longer turn to God for mercy. You can no longer return to him to receive his goodness. You're certainly free to pray in hell. He's just not going to respond. It's literally a God-forsaken existence for all of eternity. It's weird to talk about, but we don't apologize for talking about it because Jesus talks about it. The best experience that I've had to really kind of sum up what hell is going to be like in my life, we were on our honeymoon. Actually, that sounds like a really bad setup, doesn't it? No, our honeymoon was amazing. It was incredible. No, it was, uh, let, me, let me figure out how to do this. Um, it has nothing to do with the honeymoon. We were on a cruise, and uh, our honeymoon was amazing. Okay, so we were on a cruise, and we were like going to like St. Martin, Martinique, and Barbados, and we were going to all these fun islands, and we, were, uh, we splurged and got this room that had a private little deck. It was like this wide, but you could fit two people out there and stand on it, and so I gained an absurd amount of weight on this honeymoon because it's, you know, all you can eat, right? And you can eat whenever you want. So every meal I'd be like, bring two of those. Bring, bring one of everything. I'm just going to have it all. And I just, I gained a lot of weight. Um, but then they would have this night, like, feast. And they would have these uh, chocolate bars and melted chocolate. You could put anything and melt chocolate on it and eat. It was really, really good. So I went to these one night. It was like a midnight buffet. So I came back to the room. Kara was, like, asleep. I was stuffed. I couldn't lay down. I was going to throw up if I laid down. And I... I, I went out on the deck, and all the lights were off. Like this, I couldn't see anything. All the lights were off, just the wall of the ship. It was dark, and I looked out, and it was, you know, the moon was out, and it was like glimmering on the water, and it was a little choppy. And the stars were out, and it felt like the entire ship was asleep. It was quiet, and I could hear the water splashing against the bottom of the ship. And I just imagined, man, if I'm like, if a wave hit or I just kind of passed out from all the sugar and just fell overboard and the ship just kind of left and I would be waiting here in the middle of the ocean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from anybody probably, if I screamed, and I was terrified, if I screamed, nobody would hear me. Nobody would come rescue me. That's the closest thing that I can think of that hell's going to be like. You can ask for rescue and for mercy, and it's too late. I hate saying that. Now, fortunately, God in his kindness has made a way for us to turn to him now to rescue us from this God-forsaken outcome. If hell is God-forsakenness in a place, that's the most important part of hell, that you're God-forsaken. It's not the place is going to be bad too, but the God-forsakenness is the part that makes it hell. How did God make a way for us to get to avoid that? And Jesus puts it, I mean, do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't, it was a rhetorical question. It was meant for people to hear it and record it and put in the Bible so that you could read it. Because the answer why God, for the Father forsook the Son is so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken. That's the gospel. Jesus endured hell on the cross, God-forsakenness, so that we don't have to. 
so that we don't have to. And you can turn to Jesus right now. Before we go on in this passage, you can turn to him right now and say, I surrender, I can't fix myself, my penalty is due, and Jesus took it for me. And because he died on the cross in my place and raised back to life, I can avoid any moment for the rest of eternity being apart from you. And that's the best part about heaven, is that God is with you. So heaven begins now. When you are in Christ, it begins now. You're never alone again. God is always with you through the Spirit. All right, back to our passage. Jesus is leveraging hell to encourage us to take this commandment very seriously. I'll look at it again here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Why the severity? Jesus is telling us the stakes are high in this one. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you, and this, like every guy in here should memorize this verse because God has a way of bringing it to mind when you need to remember it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, it just means that we don't belong here. We're citizens of heaven. We're living here. We're going to be good earthly citizens, but our real citizenship is in heaven. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's strong language. There is something waging war against your soul. What are you going to do about it? If you choose to let your passions go unchecked, they will introduce all sorts of destruction and mayhem into your life. It deadens spiritual zeal. It will deaden relational intimacy. It widens self-focused blind spots. It limits relational and conversational depth because you're hiding a part of you. So you always keep the conversation at a fairly superficial level. And, every and you can see it in people that you know really, really well because you're like, there's something, what's going on, man? The wicked thing about lust is that the very thing you're looking for, deep connection with another human being, actually moves further and further and further away from you as you pursue it in this way. Have we talked about the Eskimo wolf trap here? Have I preached, have I said that one before? The Eskimo wolf trap with the blood, the spike? Okay, all right, I'm gonna gonna say it then. I thought maybe I had. So the way that an Eskimo catches a wolf is he buries a blade in the ground, and, he, and the blade's standing up. It's like a 12-inch blade or something, really sharp. And he begins putting little drops of blood on the tip of it, some animal that he killed, just little drops of blood, and it begins to coat this knife, and it freezes. And then he just puts more and more layers of this blood on it, and it becomes a, a blood popsicle. This is the grossest part of the message. It becomes like a blood popsicle. So a wolf comes along, he smells it, and he starts licking this popsicle. And he he eventually laps up all the blood, and it cuts his tongue, and he starts lapping up his own blood. All he tastes is blood. He doesn't even realize it's his anymore. And eventually he falls down and passes out and dies for loss of blood. 
And that is the most vivid illustration I can give about how lust works in your soul. You bleed out. Your soul bleeds out. You're pursuing something that you can never have in the way that you're pursuing it. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, so let's get cheerful. What's the solution? What's the solution to this issue? This is a major issue. I think most of us are convinced this is a big deal. And some of us right now in this room might be becoming some type of soul zombie where you're dead-eyed to the people around you because you're so into this. And Jesus wants to free you from that. He doesn't want you to become less human. He wants you to become more human. Is the answer to really gouge out our eyes, Jesus? Is that what the problem is? Is anyone volunteering for that? If I just learn to bounce my eyes, will that take care of this problem? It won't hurt. I don't think it's going to fix the root of the problem, but sure, that's a, that's a helpful thing. Guys talk about bounce your eyes. If you see someone that you might be attractive, look away. That's, that's good counsel. It's not going to fix it. It's a, it's a temporary fix. You know, if it were the case that if, you, if, if we could just gouge out our eyes, if that's where the real problem was, then our blind Christian friends would be good to go. That's not the case. If your eyes and your hands aren't what causes you to sin, by all, if they are what causes you to sin, by all means, cut them off. But we don't need new eyes and new hands. We need a new heart. That's where the problem is. Our heart, spiritually speaking, is the root of the problem. So we actually need to become a new person. Which means the first thing that we need to do is surrender our lives to Christ. Now, I've counseled dudes in this area before who have come up to me, and maybe even their friend told them that I might be someone good to talk with, and they start the conversation like, I don't want, just easy on the Jesus stuff because I'm not really into that. Just give me some tips on how I can, like, what's the software I should use? Great. Uh, yeah, I can give you some ideas, but you're not going to win. You won't win this battle. Until you surrender to Christ, good luck. I'll give you some things. Maybe you'll be good for a couple weeks. You won't win. You need to surrender to Christ and have the help of the Holy Spirit working on this with you. So that's the first step. You need to turn your life over to Christ and ask the Spirit regularly to help you in this way. Now, here's a few spiritual practices that help, um, and I would just say do these, very, do these prayerfully. Um, these are in your notes. The first one is called watching, and there's a couple passages there that you can read on your own. But the idea of being watchful is to become exquisitely aware of when the first thought comes to mind. The first thoughts are always the weakest. In other words, as soon as an idea or something comes to your imagination, a thought, a look, a glance, as soon as it lands, immediately deal with it then. The longer that you let it, if you let it linger, it gets stronger. The longer you let it linger, the weaker you will get in denying yourself. So be watchful. Pay attention to when this happens. Pay attention to when this happens. Uh, the other one is fasting. 
Fasting is abstaining from specifically food for a set amount of time in order to um, in order to set specific time that you'd be eating aside to pray. And there's other things that you can fast from, but fasting from food shakes up the system more than anything else and better than anything else. So if you can, I would suggest that. And maybe it's just two meals a week, two consecutive meals a week, like a breakfast and a lunch or a lunch and a dinner. Um, don't be so busy that you have to work through lunch and call it fasting. <laughs> that doesn't count. It's just you're working too much. You need to take a break. Fasting is saying, I'm going to fast this day every week or these two meals, consecutive meals every week. And what that does is it reminds you that your body's not in charge. Well, it does a lot of things. But one of the things that will help with this is saying, no, I don't have to respond to every impulse that I feel. It's a spiritual discipline, and it'll, learn you to it'll teach you to trust in the Lord and go to the Lord. Okay, I'm feeling this. God, I'm really frustrated and angry and grumpy because I can't eat right now. You're going to have to deal with that. Like I, That's been a real prayer for me. Learn to fast so that you remind yourself that your body's not in charge. Because denying yourself in all sorts of ways is just part of the deal, isn't it? Confession. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is the last one. Do you guys have somebody that you can talk to in your life that you can be honest with and don't just give the polite confessions like, well, I was a little prideful this week. I know you did stuff worse than that. Come on, man. It's like, don't even say it. Like, we're all prideful. We got it. It's fine. But like, give me the nitty gritty stuff that you're, you don't want to tell me. You got to have a friend like that. You've got to. You can't win the fight on your own. You just can't. You need someone that you can confess your sins to. You need someone praying about the real stuff, not just that God would help you be less prideful. We're going to sing a song here, and we're going to confess our shortcomings to God. Now, this this part is private. Okay, you're not. We're not confessing to each other this morning. You're having a conversation with God during this song. Because the beautiful thing about God is wherever you are, whatever you've done, you can start fresh right now. And in five minutes, you screw up again, and you can start fresh again. And in a week, you're going to screw up again, and you can start fresh again. And the most, one of the most heinous things that Satan does to believers is make them feel like, okay, God's just going to be sick of me coming back to him because I keep coming back about the same thing. He's not going to want to hear it anymore. And that's not true. His mercies are new every morning. You just don't know how good he is yet. Start fresh every time. Wherever you are, start fresh now. Could we have the music team come forward? I'm going to read some of the lyrics of the song we're going to be singing for the things we've done and left undone, for the ways we've wandered from your heart, forgive us, we pray. Forgive us, we pray. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. You remember the way we started the series? Blessed are the poor in spirit, which means blessed are those who know they can't fix themselves. Those who run to God for mercy and help. We're going to sing the song of confession and you just deal privately with the Lord yourself, wherever you're at. Just have an honest conversation. Sing this prayer to him. And then we're going to remind you with the last song of God's faithfulness, which is where it should always end. 
We're going to remind you of how good he is, how faithful he is, how much he loves you. Every single person in here has screwed up. Every one of us, me more than anybody. And God is faithful and will forgive us, will cleanse us, and will build a lifelong project of making us safe to be around, pure, holy, good. He will change you. It's what he does. Let me pray for us. And would you stand while I'm praying, please? Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.